Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi and welcome to Cross Section. This week we are really excited to have a special guest with us. Monday sees the start of Eating Disorder Awareness Week and we're going to be focusing today's conversation around mental health. Later in today's episode, we're going to have a warts and all conversation about mental health, particularly around eating disorders. Part of that conversation might be quite hard to listen to, particularly if you have any personal experience around that area. So you might want to stop listening and that's okay. Please look after yourself. However, before we get into that, we're going to do um, just one brief stop in the week's political news. From our usual cross-section team, it's just myself and Peter this week. Hi, Peter. Uh, hi, Joe. Yeah, it's great. We've got rid of the rest. It's just you and I. The cream is rising from the top. <laughs> the wheat and the chaff. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll get in trouble for that later. Um, it's been a huge week in Scottish politics, and there's been a lot of attention around the Christian faith of one of the candidates for First Minister, Kate Forbes. We actually had an email to cross.section at ea.org um, asking us to talk about it. So, um, Peter, you've articulated on Twitter some of the issues around the kind of attention that Kate Forbes has received this week, but also the opportunities for Christians in this moment. Um, for our listeners that haven't yet made the leap of following you on Twitter, can you just share some of your thoughts? I'm just coming to terms with the first bit of that, that people might not be following me <laughs> and might not already have heard. Um, absolutely. Um, I mean, Kit Forbes is the finance minister in Scotland, off of maternity leave. The opportunity has come to go for first minister and she's throwing her hat in the ring. And it's been really fascinating because I think in one level, I think she's like next level in the way she's engaged. And yet she's doing what many Christians have to do is navigate their faith in a world that's less understanding in this moment. And she's articulating the majority held view of Christians globally and historically. And she's always been public and clear. And yet it's funny in this moment, the kind of pushback. I think she learned from Tim Farron and she's engaged head on. She kind of owned it in that first 24 hours, really clear, really honest, really nuanced. Um, she said, there's views that I have and there's there's policy implications. So she was actually very clear on three issues that we've talked about on the gender. She said she would want to change that on redefinition of marriage. She said she wouldn't. That's a settled matter. And then on assisted dying, actually, and assisted suicide, she said that's a conscience issue. And I thought she did really well. Uh, you know, there was real nuance in how she was engaging, but still slammed um, in one sense for saying, hey, we're a progressive country. Some people even saying there's no place for you, not just your views, no place for that kind of thinking and people who think like that some really obvious intolerance some people a bit more nuanced like oh you can have your views but keep them private kind of dot 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 idea and then some religious illiteracy that was almost like but oh right so you have your views and you think those things are relevant to all of life and that's been really interesting because there's been a contrast with the one of the other candidates who's coming from a Muslim background but his I mean he's observing Ramadan but it isn't taking a traditional Muslim line on some of those views so what I love about it is how it's opened up the conversation. I mean, that I think is probably the most interesting thing. And I like talking about that. And I think she's done it really well in the public square and the media almost don't know what to do with her. She's relatively young, just had a baby. She doesn't fit some of the classic mold maybe. And they're like, oh, 
what do we do with this person who is in a very progressive party, very pro-independence? I mean, the SNP is one of the most progressive agendas in the UK and she is a leading figure in it. And yet she holds views that people go, oh, I didn't, oh. And I think it's fascinating and it really opens up the space for the conversation. So at this point, um, or I'd say just before lunchtime on Thursday afternoon, we don't, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. But it has been really interesting, I think, to see how various people, both Christian and otherwise, have responded to these issues on social media and news platforms and that sort of thing. Um, Kemi Badenoch, who's the Equalities Minister, um, on an interview for Politico, I thought her response was really interesting because she made it very clear that she disagreed with Kate Forbes on various issues. And she said, like anyone, I'm disappointed when someone disagrees with me. Um, But she was asked if she would condemn Kate for her views. And she said, "Um, asking me to condemn someone for their religious views means that you fail to understand the basic responsibilities of being minister for equality. And she had this line, which I would love to believe she came up with on the spot. I think it might have been worked beforehand, but she said it was asking her to use the Equalities Act as a sword for their own battles rather than a shield to prevent others from discrimination. What what a line. Um, but yeah, we'll be interested to see how that story progresses. Going more into today's focus around mental health, this week there was a documentary released on Channel 4 called Pre and Danny's Death Road Trip where mother and son duo Dame Preleith and Conservative MP Danny Kruger tackle the issue of assisted suicide. Pre believes that people towards the natural end of life should have the right to end it peacefully and on their terms. And Danny is chair of the all-party parliamentary group on Dying Well, which promotes access to excellent care at the end of life and stands against the legalisation of assisted suicide. In the documentary, Prue and Danny go around various places in the USA and Canada where assisted suicide is legal, asking questions and essentially trying to convince one another of the other's viewpoint. Uh, Peter, what did you make of the documentary? I thought it was fascinating. I mean, the relationship is clearly what makes it so interesting, mother and son, and, and they clearly have a really good relationship and they clearly take very diametrically opposed views on this issue. But in a in a really engaging way. And they were both kind of trying to persuade the other, go and visit people who had gone through it. Um, And I think it is actually quite a difficult issue to wrestle with. And as they each make their case, I find it quite persuasive each time about the individual freedom to do this as you want. Why should anybody be allowed to stop somebody who can make those choices? That was kind of Prue's case. She should be allowed to choose her own time of dying in her own way. I mean, I disagree with her still, but I, you know, it's definitely moments where I was thinking, gosh, that's, you're, you're putting the case well and you want physician assisted and you want all the tests put in place. But Danny's point was, no matter what we do, you can't put sufficient tests in place. And he went to Canada in particular and, and having lived there, I was very interested in that. But this piece of legislation, I think it's called MADE. And in Vancouver Island, close to where we lived and we were out there, seven and a half percent of people who deaths are under this piece of legislation. Seven and a half. I couldn't believe it was that kind of number. So in Canada, they're at the, the most, whatever you want to call it, I, for me, concerning end of that legislation um, because of what they've opened up. And, and you're talking about a lot of people now whose deaths are being 
facility. And I do think assisted suicide is the right language. And this is what it is. It's a, it's a physician or somebody helping end your life. It's like, it's really problematic. Mm. So yeah, I find it challenging, but really interesting. We, we put a video out on um, our social media, sort of inviting people to, well, as we always do, inviting people to get involved in the conversation. Um, and we had one person called Sarah who um, was particularly alarmed. Prue, Prue made quite a few comments in relation to her pets. She had an old cat <laughs> that featured in the documentary and she sort of was saying how, you know, the same way that we out of kindness put our animals down, wouldn't it be great if humans had access to the same thing? I thought it was really interesting. Prue was convinced that Danny Kruger's faith had more to do um, with his position on assisted dying than he was letting on. Um, what, what did you make of that? He, he was basically trying to downplay the faith element. What did you make of that? I did find that intriguing, and I think it does link back to our last story in Kate Forbes. She's very clear her faith does drive her position on issues. Danny in this one was saying his faith didn't. Uh, not that it was relevant, but that he taught from a much more pragmatic point of view. I was surprised by that, as in for me, uh, I think if I didn't have a faith, I would have more sympathy to Prue's position. If people want to choose to do that, okay. But it's the sanctity of life point. It's that we're made in the image of God point that really uh, I want to wrestle with and engage with. And Prue did bring up suffering. And I think that was really interesting to hear them chat around that. But actually, it is faith that drives this. And, and the implications in Canada are where you don't have a faith. What, what, on what value system do you make these decisions? So if it's not driven by that, what is it? And it and the risk there is, I think, you're seeing people um, who don't have a terminal diagnosis. So it always starts there and then it goes, well, but, but what if it's not? And then, I mean, they're moving broader and broader at every step. And so Danny's arguing pragmatically. I can see that if in terms of winning other people, because obviously a diminishing number of people share our faith. But I would also want to acknowledge the same way Kate does. Actually, it's my faith that drives every decision I want to make. Because I, I think if I didn't have a faith, I... I and I wasn't following Jesus and I didn't have an understanding of the sanctity of life and image of God, I, I think I would have inclined to be more to the freedom end of the spectrum. It is my faith that drives me in this moment to have a compassionate care and concern for other people. Because we're privileged, they said this at one point in the, in the documentary, probably to be able to make some of those decisions. You have the freedom, you have thought, you may have resource to be able to do it. So it's, it's the people in the system who don't have that, who aren't getting good care, who think they're a burden to their family, who are being driven in Canada to make these decisions very quickly and not having a terminal diagnosis and often actually with mental health conditions where Canada wants to go. And that's really concerning because those those decisions move on a day-by-day -day basis and the ability to make those, do you have the capacity to do that properly? There I'm more sympathetic to Danish Pragmatic. Sorry, that was a long answer for you asked me, Joe, but I think it really navigates the two spaces really interesting and it is a complex issue. Well, as you alluded to, as we went on in the documentary, they explored, I guess, broader and broader reasons that someone might want to have access to assisted dying. In Canada, it is already the case that someone could have access to assisted dying on the grounds of anorexia. And they are currently changing the law so that um, someone could have access to assisted dying on the grounds of mental illness. And this is where I want to bring in our special guest for this week. I don't want to keep her waiting any longer. Today, we are joined by Emma Scrivener. Born in Belfast, she now lives in Eastbourne with her husband, Glenn, and their two children. 
Emma blogs about identity, faith, and mental health at emmascrivener.net. And she is the author of several books, including A New Name and A New Day, which discuss mental health alongside the Christian faith. A New Name is Emma's personal story with anorexia and Christianity. And A New Day walks the reader through the difference that the good news of Jesus can make to our mental health. She tackles hunger, anxiety, control, shame, anger, and despair, and shows us how Jesus dealt with each of those struggles at the cross and how he continues to help his people today. Hi, Emma. So good to have you with us. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Um, So bringing you in very much at the deep end, but on this issue with now in Canada that, that people can access assisted dying on the grounds of anorexia, can you just um, highlight, talk us through some of the dangers of that kind of legislation? Um, certainly, yeah. Uh, I guess, for one thing, a big question that we're asking is what sort of a society are we? Are we a society that protects the weak? Or, you know, what do we do? So why, for example, do we have telephone lines like the Samaritans? Or uh, I'm based in Eastbourne and there's a popular uh, place near us called Beachy Head where our chaplaincy works because people quite often will use it uh, as a place to end their lives. Um, Now, I cannot imagine a world in which I could phone the Samaritans and they would advise me to just go with what I'm feeling and to um, to take my own life. I think it's particularly the case when you're dealing with mental illness, where as the name you know, suggests, your your brain's not working properly. You're not, you're not necessarily who you would be um, at other times in your life. And whether you're struggling with an eating disorder, um, which really does in many cases change change the chemistry of your brain in a, in a very fundamental way or or say depression you know where um it really does you can go through periods where the life really does feel like it's not worth living and then periods where actually you know it, it's you feel a lot more positive um so i think it's very dangerous to say to someone particularly with a men- mental health illness well um and who doesn't necessarily know what they want, you can have what you what you feel at this moment is the right thing, and um, and we will we will support you in that. Not to mention, you know, the people who, um, as you as you alluded to, are worried about um, being a burden on their loved ones. So you know, there's all sorts of, I mean, the, yeah, there's there's all sorts of questions. Um, that I think it raises and and also I think in the media particularly the people who are um, advocating for assisted suicide are often people who are very um they're very coherent and they uh you know that they, they're quite strong they they know what they believe they know what they they want they can articulate that in a in a very sort of confident way but they are not necessarily representative of the rest of the people who mm. would be coming and saying look I don't know how I feel you know, maybe I should just do this. Maybe I should just do that. Um, and so, yeah, I guess as Christians as well, what we'd want to do is say, first of all, the gospel gives you a framework for understanding pain on a different level than actually the world can do. The world cannot explain it. The world cannot um, 
you know, Jesus alone meets meets us in the point of need, meets us at the cross, experiences all the pain we could ever go through and understands that. Um, but also it, it gives us a hope for what's to come and the Lord gives us strength um, for what we're, we're dealing with now. And that is not to say that it is easy and it's not to, um, it's not to try and uh, whitewash over mental illness, which is incredibly difficult, incredibly painful. And, you, you know, there's there's the individual individual conscience and so on as well. But I think if we're if we are getting into a situation where we're allowing people to legislate for others, um, it, it's very difficult because you cannot defend as as that you know the quote you gave us earlier was so brilliant. You can't be a shield and a sword. You can have the strong people wielding the the sword, but what happens to the weak people? Well, they get cut down along with it. I'm sorry, that's a very long-winded answer. Please edit. <laughs> no, it's it's very helpful. The documentary definitely challenged me to think with compassion. Um, the situations that some people face are unimaginably difficult. The thing that troubles me in the UK, um, as the laws sort of being proposed and discussed, is they want to include the protection of someone's mental health being assessed and and sort of declaring someone fit to make that that decision for themselves and as you've sort of touched on there to me that that just feels like a bit of an oxymoron how how can someone be in a place where um where for for very real reasons they feel like they can't go on um and be declared not to have not to be battling depression or another sort of mental illness in that Mm. Yeah, I think that that is that's the biggest risk is the ability to put the safeguards in place is a, is a real life concern and that that moves the people's sense of themselves and their awareness of themselves moves I mean you get it right from the youngest new reports today about social media and the impact that has on the brain literally rewiring the brain particularly of young people and particularly of females and, you know again as a father of daughters I'm really interested in that information but the higher levels of anxiety and depression but that can shift. So in certain moments, you're going to feel more depressed and more likely to make a decision in a particular way. And then obviously, as Emma gave the example, when somebody's on the beach, you don't say, oh, go ahead. If that's your mind right now, you of course want to talk them down, create a space and hopefully then uh, a space where they, what they're feeling and their anxieties and, and then build a community and support around them. So it's that variability piece, I think is, is one of the most concerning in what's being proposed that somebody in that moment may articulate they want this uh, and then in a few days later that would change but of course there isn't a few days later if you allow that to go ahead and the speed at which it was happening in somewhere like Canada the person's dead and now they may you know they're not in a position to change their mind so it is the compassion the weakness like what sort of society do we want to create is it a society that looks after the most vulnerable and creates laws to protect the most vulnerable and that's where I was very sympathetic to what Danny was ultimately arguing for is that is what we need to do and in this moment we have to do that on behalf of everybody else because what's happened in Canada is that you have people who literally can't afford the care package. They aren't getting any kind of care and it's not really feeling they have no other option. They actually literally have no other option. They cannot afford to go on living because the care that they need is beyond the resources they have to pay for it. And so they're in absolute agony and pain with no support. So he, just to be clear, I mean, people like us are advocating for the right care package we put yes. around people has to be in place. Mm -hmm. That's the key. It's not just a, oh, we don't pass this law. We don't pass this law because we're a society that wants to care for people in a holistic way mm -hmm. and make sure they're not at that point. 
that to me is the Christian caring response in this moment. I read an article recently by um, a, a journalist called Cosmo Landesman, and he's not a, a believer as far as I know, but it's about his son who um, who commits suicide and his reflections. His book's called How Not to Live After Loss. He has a quote um, in his book, and it's from a lady called Jennifer Michael Hecht, and it's a book called Stay. Um, and this is what she says. She's talking about friends that she lost to suicide. She says... Um, this is what I, I would say to them. Sobbing and useless is great. Sobbing and useless is a billion times better than dead. A billion times. Thank you for choosing sobbing and useless over dead. The essay ends, don't kill yourself. Suffer here with us instead. We need you with us. We've not forgotten you. You're our hero. Stay. And just, I thought that was a, that's a lovely, you know, the, getting alongside people and recognizing the difficulty that it, it that is inherent in, in staying, and then uh, you know very much as Peter said, getting the support in place so that people can keep going, can keep fighting, while, and recognizing the scale of that fight, um, but wanting to affirm them in that and get around them, and and yeah, in that. Well, if you are interested in getting your head around this issue, I would recommend the one hour documentary. As I said to someone yesterday, it's sad enough that I teared up a couple of times, but it's not depressing enough that it ruined my week. Um, it's, it's great. It was also great to see the issue that is so polarizing um, presented in this mother and son relationship where they clearly passionately disagree with each other, but also love each other and are able to to tease each other in the midst of that so that was good to see the documentary is available on the channel 4 website and it's called Prue and Danny's death road trip as I say every week please follow us on twitter at EA UK news and on instagram evangelical alliance follow along with what we're doing in and around the podcast you can also get in touch as people did this week cross.section at eauk.org what stories do you want us to be talking about finally we want to let you know that from this week for the next five weeks we'll be running a survey exclusively through a link in the episode description to find out a bit about our listeners we want to know who you are the survey takes no more than a minute and asks you where you live your age your gender and don't worry, there's no contact information required. There will be no follow-up emails. Emma, as I said, it's wonderful to have you with us. I wonder if I can start by just asking you what a typical day looks like for you at the moment. Yeah, that is a very good question. And now I feel like I need to justify my existence. Oh, no, I'm only joking. Um, up until uh, recently, uh, we my my husband and I, we've got two children. We've got a, a birth daughter, Ruby, who is eight. And we have an adopted son, uh, JJ, who is now five. And up until recently, I've been um, at home with him, um, you know, for, for preschool and obviously settling him in and all the rest. He's just started school recently. So I'm on a new, I'm on a new journey and um, I'm discovering what uh, free time feels like. Uh, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> and at the at the moment I'd say I'm doing a few bits and pieces, a few uh, things like this, um, a, a, a little, a few little speaking things, um, a little bit of writing, some editing, so uh, work in progress. Come back to me this time next year, and 
Hopefully I'll still be floating around a pool on a lilo <laughs> with a sprite in my hand or something. But yeah, so yeah, just just at the minute, just negotiating um, parenting and I think trying to remind myself that um, uh, I've got skills outside of making truck noises. That's brilliant. As I've said a couple of times now, we're going to be having a conversation about mental health. And I think it's worth noting right at the start that anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. Your book, um, A New Name, is your story in and out of anorexia. I think it's possible that someone um, listening to this who hasn't experienced an eating disorder, they might think that anorexia is, or, or any other eating disorder, is about how someone looks, about how they feel about how it looks. Um, could you tell us what what does anorexia feel like? Well, I guess it, it it really is different for each person, but there are some characteristics there that 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 are similar. Um, I'll tell you what it felt like for me. Um, I first developed anorexia when I was thirteen, and I'd had a very settled, very uh, secure uh, family background, but. A couple of challenges came up, you know, my body was changing and my grandfather died. And, you know, the first time that was the first time my parents didn't have an answer for what happens when you die. And I was bullied at school and uh, I, and I was starting to learn a little bit about the Christian faith. My, my family weren't believers then. Um, but the view of God that I had was quite confused. It, it was either sort of touchy-feely God, the Holy Spirit or God the Father, who I figured was like a headmistress or a headmaster with lots of rules. So it, uh, the other sort of slice in the pie was just my temperament, which is, um, I, you know, I've always been one of life's good girls. I'm, I was never going to go off the rails with male models and drugs. You know, that just wasn't going to be my, my yeah. Um, so I guess in, in with all of those internal pressures, um, and living in a culture that at the time particularly was really, really um, embracing size zero. And interestingly enough, that's that's coming back in again um, this year. Uh, you know, it was a way of kind of, I guess, a way of rebelling that was sanctioned by society and by the people around me in a way that other things wouldn't. And it wasn't that I looked in the mirror at the time and felt like I was fat. Fat was the word that I would have used to describe all of my mess. Mm. And that was all the questions that I had, not questions about can I look better in this dress, but questions like, what does it mean to be a woman? Do I fit in? Um, what happens to people when they die? What is the point in life? Um, you know, does, does anything give me value? Uh, am I worthwhile? Do I have to make that myself? Who is God? What's he like? What does he want from me? Does he want me? Does he want anything? You know, these are existential questions. Um, and, you know, whenever I was a little girl on the first day at infant school, I went into the sand pit and chewed everybody else out. And I tried to keep it smooth the rest of the day to keep the sand inside the lines. That's sort of the kind of person I am. So when all of these existential issues came up, it felt to me like I was sand spilling out of the sand pit mm -hmm. or a spill on a white carpet. And it seemed that if I could make my body smaller because let's face it when you're 13 what can you control apart from your body really not very mm. much 
But by making my body smaller, by shrinking my world down, I could also take charge of those feelings inside. And instead of worrying about a million different things, about life and death and everything in between, all I had to do was worry about one thing, and that was, could I lose weight? And I could do that, and I was good at that. Um, Sorry, excuse me. Don't worry. And, yeah, that was... So that was... um, yeah, it, it felt like I had stumbled upon... I, I'm so sorry. One second. <laughs> sorry, Dan, I'm doing an interview. Phone you later. Bye. I really think you should keep that in. I think that would be just genius <laughs> because that is my family and that is my life. And um, Anyway, yes, it, it felt like it was a... Um, I think it's Friedrich Buchner or somebody talks about his daughter's experience with anorexia and he says, you know, it, it was like, it's like some kind of secret dark magic that you stumble upon and it gives you an incredible sense of power and um, autonomy, like being God of your own universe. But the reality is that what you feel is the very opposite from what's happening. And just touching back on the debate about assisted dying, you know, I, I, I think there are very few anorexics who are trying to die. What you're trying to do is you're trying to live. It's just that death is an unfortunate side effect. And again, you know, this is the problem with mental health and struggles and illnesses. You you can think that you're doing one thing, you're making yourself stronger, but actually be doing something very, very different instead. And as you as you lose weight, um, your brain also the chemistry of your brain changes, so you do start thinking. Um, in very polarized ways, you become paranoid and you start hoarding food, things that you wouldn't have done in, in, in an ordinary situation. And that was proved. They did a, a, an experiment, I think it was in America, on some healthy men. And it was called the Minnesota uh, Starvation Experiment, where they just got these healthy guys, no issues with eating swords or anything else. And they made them put them on a very low calorie diet for a certain period of time. And by the end of it, they were threatening to chop each other's legs off. They didn't want any wow. food, even if they were offered it. They felt like they looked fat in the mirror and they, they, they'd become really paranoid and really sort of internalized. So there's a physio, the physiological um, aspect to it as well. I think, so for Christians, one of the questions I have, I, you've written very openly and honestly about this and then engage faith. And I think we've seen a shift recently in terms of mental health and faith, much more conversation, but certainly when I was growing up, but even more recently than that, there's been a real reluctance to talk about um, the two things. And I'm, I, I mean, I'm fascinated in how you felt sharing about struggling with mental health and, and bringing your faith into play in that, as you've written about it, and how, I mean, how that you, you were doing that kind of ahead of a lot of other people. I'm, I'm curious as to how that was for you and the kind of response you got to that, because I think there is a nervousness, I would say, amongst Christians around how we put these two things together mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean that, I think that's a great question I remember when I was having so I had anorexia uh, as a 13 year old and then I, I had again another really serious bite as a as an adult and of course those two things are quite different because autonomy and all, all the rest but as a teenager I remember seeing a therapist and I, I remember her saying one day you could write a book about this And looking at her in the eye and saying, over my dead body, will I ever write or speak about mental health and me or this ridiculous illness? It will never be linked to me. I'm going to bury it in the ocean and then I'm going to stab it and then I'm going to drown it and then I'm going to stamp on it and you will never hear about it from me. What's interesting, though, is 
that the gospel, I think, um, and, and knowing Jesus is a, is a relationship, not a set of rules. And what's wonderful about the church and what's wonderful about the gospel is that it sees us in all of our weaknesses. And yet, you know, Jesus sees us as we really are, really does see into the pit of us, the things that we're scared to show other people and loves us, but says he's not going to leave us like that. Um, and I think, I think that's an incredible thing. I think that's what everyone is looking for. Someone who can know me and yet not run away. Someone who can um, see me and love me. And therefore, church should be a place where ideally um, it's not that we're good people getting better. It's that we are really, you know, people all messed up in different ways. Some of, some of us are messed up with eating disorders. Some of us are messed up with other things. But you know what? The criteria to be a Christian is that you need help. You need to save your, that's, that's what qualifies you. And so churches should be places where it's all of these, you know, the like the, the quote, beggars showing each other where to find food, that we can be open and honest in front of one another because we're open and honest with Jesus, because he accepts us and because we're looking not to ourselves, but looking to the Lord in whom we can stand and not be ashamed because his beauty, his righteousness covers us. Um, and so... I, I think for many, many years, I tried to prove myself and tried to uh, make God accept me in, a, in 101 different ways, all of which failed. And it wasn't really that I wanted to be more open and honest about the mental health conversation and my faith. It was that I was dying and I felt I had no reason to live. And I opened the Bible and I met this person, Jesus, who was the first person who was more beautiful than my addiction and who said, I am... Um, both a lion who is bigger than it, but I'm a lamb who is also broken and understands. And then that offered me not just, uh, you know, not just the ability to have a curry with my friends or look slightly better in an outfit or cause people to be less worried about me, but a reason for living and a real genuine answer to those existential questions that I had as a 13 year old. Mm -hmm. And that had always been, that kept coming back and kept coming back again. Um, and so that freedom to be ourselves in front of him, I think, means that we can then stand and not be ashamed in the same community because we're saying to each other, look, I'm not better or worse than you. I, I'm lost. But Jesus found me. Isn't he beautiful? Mm -hmm. And then we point one another to him. And that's that would be that when church is at its best, that's what it is. And, and that enables you to speak and not be ashamed. You, you talk beautifully, both just now and in your books, about how that encounter with Jesus was the, the beginning of more permanent changes um, in your battle with anorexia. How, how do you think Christians should balance seeking spiritual transformation that, you know, makes us new creations, changes who we are fundamentally, and medical intervention. Mm. Um, I think traditionally we tend we tend to go to extremes, don't we? We're gonna, you know, we'll say, well, church is just concerned with spiritual stuff, just your soul, um, but not the rest of you. And you know, so if there's if there's a particular medical problem, then we'll send you to the experts. But come back if there's something, you know, if you're not, I don't know, giving. Well, I don't know if you're not praying enough or whatever. The reality is, of course, what the scripture says, we are we're whole beings. And a bit like Peter was saying earlier, you know, in terms of um, what, how much our faith um, 
uh, influences what we believe. It, our, our, our body and our brain and our faith, everything is, is connected. So everything comes under the Lordship of Christ. However, um, the Lord has given us medicine and experts and, and professionals to help us. And, you know, while you don't, while a, while you wouldn't relinquish, if you have someone in your spiritual care, you wouldn't relinquish them to a doctor completely. You would call in, you know, people for help and say, look, we don't know what we're doing here. Could you could you come alongside us? So I think the church partnering with professionals is definitely the way forward. And particularly when it comes to eating disorders and mental health issues where really it's, it's absolutely, you know, there are many... There are many um, good things about therapy, but but for example, if you are very low weight with anorexia, you can throw all the therapy in the world at that. But until you get up to a particular point, you won't be able to think or reason, and so it's it's completely useless. Mm. So weight restoration in that example then is is absolutely key, and um, so you must have the two things side by side. Plus, I think um, you know eating disorders are addictions and. Uh, the, the the fact is you can't get out without help quite often. Well, certainly that would be my experience that um, you might think you can do it by yourself, but actually you need all the resources you can get. But you you think and pray through what you're um, what you're getting from others, you know, in the same way as you do as every every area of life. And in in that conversation, I'm just the the language of healing and the use of that, the language of kind of then but then brokenness and the thorn in, in the flesh. The now and the not yet tension of, of what we all live in. I think in physical health, we maybe have sought to understand that a little more clearly. But again, when it comes to something mental health, it feels like in Chris Diamond encounters that, that that's a gray area. People aren't quite sure even like like what language do we use that's helpful and what's maybe unhelpful. I wonder again from your experience, you talk about in terms of healing or change or brokenness or like how, how you've navigated some of that even from the language perspective. Mm. Well, I mean, I would say, yeah, we're, it's both, it's, it is both now and not yet, isn't it? It is that the Lord is working in me to make me like the person that I will one day become, but who I'm not yet. Um, and I am redeemed. I am forgiven. I am, um, you know, I'm made completely new. I am in Jesus. And so I don't need, I, I don't need to listen to the lies of the enemy or his condemnation. However, I am still also, um, you know, uh, uh, in living in this body, a broken body in a broken world with a broken mind. And it is interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we think we can think our way out of things, like our mind hasn't been affected by the fall, but somehow everything else has. And, you know, if, if someone had a, um, yeah, someone had a, a broken leg, if you said to them, I think you should just pray your way out of this, I think you'd want to go and hit them on the head with your crutch. Um, and in the same way, you know, if somebody is struggling with, with mental health, and um, it's not the case that uh, there are so many lies around. It's not the case that you've done something wrong. Although, of course, you know, there may be everybody's a sinner. Everyone does things wrong. But you haven't, you know, it's not true that you would have brought something on yourself or that you can change or make it better. And it's not true that just having enough faith um, with mental illness as with physical illness is going to make you is going to make you better. You know, we in this life. Um, we do have many troubles and we are broken and we're not who we're going to be. And so particularly with mental health, I think people do um, do have those issues often for, for their whole lives. However, 
the it's a bit like the terrain changes. just you know it's like i guess like climbing lots of mountains and all the peaks look the same but actually you are moving forward even though it feels like you're on the same ground so for me for example all those issues and questions and insecurities that i had you know as a 13 year old they're still there i still wake up in the morning and go um lord I don't feel great. You know, my, my brain's telling me that I need to do this and this and this, or I'm, I'm a load of rubbish. I don't have the same struggles around food, but I do have exactly the same heart struggles that were channeled coming out through an eating disorder. Or yeah. as I was growing up, I had obsessive compulsive disorder or depression or self-harm, all things that, you know, have been a part of my experience, but which are all just different ways of trying to deal with the underlying heart issues my heart is my heart is a work in progress and it will not until eternity be changed but the joy of the cross is it's not just that jesus gets you across the starting line and then you run the rest of it by yourself he's with you every step of the way and every day you ask for daily bread and every day you wake up and you go oh lord i'm in the same old brain the same old body and it's telling me the same old lies Take me back to what's true. And that's why church is so important. And, um, you know, the scriptures are so important because we need, we're like, we leak faith overnight and we need to be reminding ourselves of it and getting that daily bread in. And that tells us who we are, but, but it doesn't come naturally. You don't naturally float towards, um, yeah, spirituality or better mental mm. health. I don't think without sort of fighting for it. I, I have a dear friend who's, struggle with anorexia and is battling hard in her recovery now and I I knowing that I was going to get to chat to you I asked her you know what what would be helpful questions to ask um and she mentioned um about church culture so much of it is about hospitality and feeding each other we always joke at any sort of evangelistic event there'll always be food there um <laughs> and obviously Yes, love a quiche. <laughs> um, and obviously now we're going into the time of Lent as well, where there's, again, a lot of emphasis around um, how kind of our faith is linked with food and either sacrificing crisps or chocolate or whatever it might be. Um, I just I would love your wisdom on how do we support those struggling with eating disorders in this? What, what's been helpful or unhelpful in your experience? How do we strive to be godly in that? Well, I'd love to give you a neat answer, but I'll, I can throw a couple of thoughts. I guess um, sort of if you're looking at it from a, a big perspective, um, one of the things that uh, yesterday we, I, I met up, I, meet, I have a small women's uh, Bible study group, and we're looking at Titus, and one of the things he says is be self-controlled. We were chatting about mm -hmm. that. Now, um, in terms of my sort of natural bent and personality, I'm extremely self-controlled, okay? Anorexia, for example, is all about control. For me, it was anyway. Um, you know, and having a system of rules and regulations to run my own life. But actually what I what I discovered was that that self-control is, is not what the Bible's talking about. You know, and that's doing what I want to do. Doing what the Lord wants, having that spiritual self-control is something very, very different. And so as we approach things like Lent, I think being aware of our own weaknesses and being aware of that distinction is very important. You know, it's... Um, it, it is for some people like me who love a bit of self-discipline, who love to do rules, who want a new regime. Thank you. That would be absolutely lovely. 
that is not helpful. That is not what I what I need to do is to come to God and go, actually, God, could you take a bit of the control? Could you help me to learn that it's actually okay to not do this or not do that? For others, Lent and fasting, my husband, for example, is he, he's um, uh, coming off some different things for Lent. And that's really, really useful for him as well. You know, and there, and there is value in that discipline, but it is, it's a godly discipline and it comes through the spirit. It is not what I think is best that comes through my self-will. Mm. And those two things are, are very different. And um, I guess as well, just with eating disorders, you know, we should just like, like with every struggle, we should be talking about these things sort of just in passing from the pulpit. So when you make a, you know, when, when you're um, talking about how you live something that you're teaching out, you know, you'll talk about that in lots of different ways. And you might say, you know, as you preach. So for example, if you struggle with eating or with drinking, or you might find that this would be helpful or this would be helpful. And so you're just legitimizing people having struggles and saying that, you know, they'll come under the gospel. In terms of food, yep, we do a lot of um, events that are based around Christian food. And I think it's, you know, if you're going to have a if you're going to have an event for, for example, people who are struggling with eating disorders, I wouldn't make that a potluck lunch. You know, you'd just be sensible. Nor would, if you were having something for alcoholics, would you necessarily base that in a pub? You know, it's just basic sort of sensitivity. Um, be aware that there are people who struggle not just with uh, anorexia, but also with binge eating, people who struggle with overeating. And so... It, you know, it's not just about trying to get some people to eat. It's about helping other people to try and draw a line there. So there's all kinds of, of eating disorders out there that they affect men, they affect older people, they affect younger people. You know, there's not one kind, and it's not just um, you know the stereotypical young girl looks in the mirror, thinks she's too fat. Very likely, the majority of people in your congregations who will be struggling will be those who are at a normal weight and maybe you say. Uh, bulimic where they're taking in lots of food overeating and then getting rid of it or overeaters um and and those are our struggles in exactly the same way but i guess as a final thing um you don't want to avoid food and meal times either because that is central to the christian faith you know we we have communion together and we do eat together and that there is fellowship around a table that we don't get anywhere else so I guess it's about trying to make that as accessible as possible. And instead of coming out of the church community to where other people are at and joining them in it, you want to invite them in to make church feel safer, to do events where you're thinking about, well, okay, how will this be helpful? How will, so that people are, the goal is always to rejoin human, mm. you know, to rejoin the community. It's not to necessarily just go and be with the person outside with a view of them always staying outside. Emma, thank you for spending time with us today and um, sharing your experience and wisdom. Uh, I really can't recommend Emma's books enough, whether mental health is something you struggle with or if you know and care for someone who it's a struggle. Um, if any of the issues we've talked about today struck a chord with you and you would like information or advice, please take a look at the links in the episode description or on the cross-section webpage, which can be found either through the Evangelical Alliance website or the episode description. Um, if you're in immediate distress, please call Samaritans, which is open 24 hours a day, 116123. Final reminder to fill in our audience survey, which is in the episode description. 
thank you emma thank you peter thank you for joining us on cross section and we will see you next week hi it's peter here thank you so much for listening to this episode of cross section if you liked it can i encourage you to click subscribe review the podcast share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.